The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Francis Thickey. He is an organic dairy farmer and soil scientist. He and his wife, Susan, operate Radiance Dairy, an 80-cow certified organic dairy farm in Fairfield, Iowa, which produces milk, cream, yogurt, and cheese for sale at local grocery stores and restaurants. Dr. Thickey earned a Ph.D. in agronomy, soil fertility, from the University of Illinois in 1988, a master's degree in soil science from the University of Minnesota, and a bachelor's degree in music and philosophy from Winona State College. Dr. Thickey has been active in many organic and environmental organizations, including the Iowa Environmental Protection Commission, the Organic Farming Research Foundation, and the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, where he and his wife were recognized as Farmers of the Year in 2012. He is also a former Food and Society Policy Fellow. Prior to farming, Dr. Thickey served as National Program Leader for Soil Science at the USDA Extension Service, where he worked extensively in water quality and sustainable agriculture programs. And he recently completed a five-year term on the National Organic Standards Board, which is a federal advisory board made up of 15 public volunteers from within the organic community, and that board was established by the Organic Foods Production Act. Welcome, Dr. Thickey. Thank you, Melinda. Well, my first question to you is, you know, you've got this impressive list of credentials, a Ph.D. in soil science. What led you to be an organic farmer? Uh-huh. Actually, I first began farming organically in 1975. After I finished my undergraduate degree, I came back and farmed with my family. And we started to farm organically in 75 and saw it as an interesting challenge. And I never thought it was a good idea to put poison on food. So that was kind of my motivation. Yeah. What led the family to switch to organic? I was kind of a rabble-rouser in college and so on. And so I actually started it on the sly the first year I did some, I was in charge of spraying herbicides, and the first year I skipped a field, and I didn't tell anybody till at the end of the year. And it turned out that that field was as good as any of the other fields. Fortunately, it was a good year for not having to do much extra, and my brothers got interested, and, and we just switched the whole farm the next year. Now, my father wasn't real happy with that because that wasn't socially acceptable. Yeah, I find that so interesting. What makes a certain way of farming quote-unquote, socially acceptable. How does that work? Well, I think it's what everybody's doing. Yeah. Look around Iowa, two-thirds of our landscape is covered in corn and soybeans. People who do something different are noticed right away. And the, the talk in the coffee shop, that makes good fodder for that. Yeah. And I guess it's just human nature not to want to break away from the crowd or what the tradition is doing. But I want to tell you, I have great admiration to those who have enough guts to stand up and say, this doesn't seem right. I'm going to try something differently, even though you know that people are talking about you. But actually, I think there are some people that like that. I mean, in Iowa, we have an organization called the Practical Farmers of Iowa, and these are innovative farmers, and they're always trying new things with cover crops, with all sorts of things. And then we share our our experiences on email, 
and it's really a great learning experience, a good learning community. Right. Well, you've been working on so many environmental issues in Iowa. And for those of our listeners who have never had the pleasure of driving through Iowa, it's beautiful country, rolling, but on many times of the year, you've got to roll your windows up because the stench of hog confinement facilities is disgusting. And I often think, how does a governor allow a state to reduce the quality of life for their citizens, to reduce property value, farm value, increase asthma rates, destroy the quality of our water and soil by allowing that industrial system to take a stronghold? Well, that's a good question. And it really comes down to the problem we have nationwide in politics, money talks, and the egg lobby in Iowa is very, very powerful. They intimidate legislators. Legislators are afraid to stand up to them. And so, basically, they do the bidding of these farm organizations. Mm-hmm. It's such a shame because we're not looking at full-cost accounting. We're not looking at the cost of all of the diseases that are related to the industrial farming system as well as the environmental destruction, let alone the reduced property values. I mean, who would want to buy land or a farm or homestead in a place where you've got to worry about your water quality and air quality, just the stench of it? And it's worse than you might imagine. I know a lot of people who had capos built near their homes in rural Iowa. And these are often family farmers who have lived there for generations. And some of them have to live in their basements. They can never go outside, seal their windows. I've even heard of people who had to abandon their houses. Right. They just could not take it. It made them sick. This is important for our listeners to know about this idea of how the industrial system has really exploited rural America. It carries over into water quality. You may have heard in Iowa we have some major water quality problems, and uh, there's a lot of denial. The research at Iowa State University shows that 93% of the nitrate that gets into our rivers and ultimately in the drinking water system comes from agriculture, and we have politicians and farmers and others in denial about it, trying to point fingers in other directions. And so it's very difficult even to get people to generally understand the problem much less the solution. Exactly. Well, I wanted to have you on because of your expertise and especially because of your recent five-year term on the National Organic Standards Board. As a registered dietitian who tries to keep my finger on the pulse of how environment and public health are connected, I am an advocate for organic food and farming. And we want to be able to trust the organic label I know that when I talk to consumers, many of them are concerned about industrial organic or that how industry seems to be weakening the standards. And I wanted you to help explain what some of the rigors were serving on the board and how we as consumers and public health professionals can work with farmers to keep the integrity of that label strong. Very good questions. First, I wanted to say that there are strengths and weaknesses to the current National Organic Program. For example, people often they think it's only a matter of what materials can you use in crop production and what materials can't you use, and that's a part of it, but it's like two sides of a coin. There are restrictions on what can be used in crop and animal production, but the other side is that it's an ecological system. Organic farming is defined as an ecological system. So if you're not going to use pesticides and synthetic fertilizers, then you need to have crop rotations and other ways of cycling nutrients to circumvent the need for these things. And so on the side of inputs, I think that the National Organic Program 
does a pretty rigorous job. I was surprised when I got on, on the National Organic Standards Board that, for example, when somebody petitions a synthetic material to be put on the national list of allowed materials, it is rigorously reviewed, and most of the time it's rejected. And basically, the NOSB puts out a contract with a scientist to do a technical review on that material, looking at all the environmental and health effects of it. And then in the end, the NOSB evaluates these materials based upon what is the effect on human health and environment, and number two, is it compatible, that material, with a system of organic and sustainable agriculture? And number three, is it necessary for organic agriculture? So it's a very rigorous process for something to get on the national list of synthetic materials. And then they're reviewed every five years. And so when they're deemed no longer necessary, then the NOSB can take them off every five years as a sunset process. And incidentally, it's a two-thirds vote. So if a material is, is petitioned to go on the national list, it takes... 10 out of 15 members of the NOSB to agree it's a two-thirds vote required to put it on the list. Mm-hmm. So that part is quite rigorous. Now, on the other side, we've seen, as you've alluded to, some erosion of the enforcement of some of the standards. And we had some successes and some setbacks. For example, we had big dairies that were organic that were CAFOs. And over many years of argument and discussion, a rule was put into place requiring grazing, for example, that Ruminant animals have to get at least 30% of their feed from grass during the grazing season. Now, many of us feel that slipped in the enforcement. We have, for example, in some places, often in desert country, where there are 10 or 15 or 20,000 cows in one location. And those of us who are grazing dairy farmers, we know cows can't walk far enough to get their 30% dry matter and then back for milking twice a day. And some of them milk three times a day. And, and those of us, um, like, for example, on my dairy farm, who are really committed to grazing, I probably exceed that requirement by four times, get over 60% of the dry matter from grazing, and do it for about double the required time of 120 days. And so it can be done right, and many dairy farmers are doing it right, but we have a problem with some certifiers that are accredited by the USDA are, we think are not doing a good job of overseeing. Mm-hmm. That's one example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what happens when consumers find out that there are flaws or weaknesses in the certification process, then they are less likely to spend more in the grocery store for the organic product. And it's a shame because I think everybody loses out. So keeping the integrity strong and rigorous, I think, is in the best interest, certainly, of consumers and organic farmers who are doing it the right way. And I think as we get further along, I want to suggest things, and maybe you would too, things consumers can do to sort their way through this. Yeah. And another example I think we should bring up first is the animal welfare standards. The yes. NOSB, about 10 years ago, made a recommendation for improved animal welfare standards. For example, that chickens would have more access to the outdoors, a minimum square footage outside, a minimum square footage inside the building. Because in the past, the original standard said that chickens had to have access to the outdoors. Well, that wasn't enforced properly. And even now, it's not being enforced properly. And these standards that were approved by the NOSB, they were finally approved by USDA in the last month of the last administration, the Obama administration. And the first thing the Trump administration did was was withdraw them. And so now we're back to that square one where we have huge chicken buildings with 180,000, 200,000 chickens in one building and they have really no access to the outdoors. Some of them have what are called porches that do not have access really to the outdoors. And chickens, their natural behavior is to scratch in the dirt. 
and they like to roll around. They like to take what's called dust baths and help them with uh, parasites. And they have a whole range of behaviors that they can't express very well when they're crammed together in a, in a building. And so that is another problem. And there are ways that I think that we can select things to try to avoid KFOL products. And there's one more piece I wanted to mention, and that is the controversy of hydroponics. Yes. In 2010, the National Organic Standards Board made a recommendation to USDA to not allow hydroponically grown crops to be certified organic. And the idea is that organic farming has always been about organic matter and soil, and we don't understand soil that well. And, and so we don't want to just take away the soil and just feed them nutrients in the water. And the USDA never implemented that recommendation of the NOSB. And as a matter of fact, they slipped a bit. In 2014, they, they put out a directive that said that uh, certifiers can certify hydroponic operations. Well, we revisited it again this last year on the NOSB, and we had a vote, and actually the vote lost. And I think it's due to, in large part to the influence of industry. There are huge hydroponic operations that are currently certified organic, and there are trade associations that profit from that indirectly from their clients making big sales and being part of their community. And so we had a big controversy, and we lost the vote. And it looks like hydroponics is going to continue to grow in organic food. As a matter of fact, certain crops like tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers, I expect that in just a few short years they will be virtually 100% hydroponically grown. And it's not labeled as hydroponic, so you can't tell in the grocery store. But that gets to the point of how can consumers get their way through this. And with, with, for example, organic milk and chicken products, poultry products, I think that one thing we can do is buy dairy products, for example, that are not from the big box stores. The big box stores, we know, almost always buy organic milk from these big CAFO dairies. And so try to buy organic milk from a company that you know has a label and I'm just going to give an example, is Organic Valley. It's a co-op owned by organic farmers. And try to choose something that you know where it comes from, rather than if it has a label of Big Box X or Big Box Y, then you're pretty sure that's CAFO milk. Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing holds with chickens, with eggs, for example. If the egg does not say anything about how the chicken was raised, it doesn't say cage-free or free-range, you can be pretty sure it was in a huge chicken cable. Mm-hmm. So those are two things I think that we can do as consumers to help sort our way through this. Yeah, I agree. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Dr. Francis Thickey, organic dairy farmer and soil scientist based in Fairfield, Iowa, where he and his wife Susan operate Radiance Dairy, an 80-cow certified organic dairy farm. Well, I want to touch on several of the points that you made. First is labeling. And even if hydroponics is going to be, well, it will be, on the market and it is going to be part of the Certified Organic Label Program, at least let consumers know that those products have been produced in a hydroponic system so that ultimately the consumer can make the end decision as to whether or not they want to buy into a soil versus a hydroponic system. And maybe I should ask you to describe the difference, or I think we all pretty much understand soil-based agriculture, but how is a hydroponic system, how does that operate? Well, there are different kinds of hydroponics. Some of them, basically the plant gets, all of them, the plant gets their nutrients delivered in water versus in soil where the nutrients are 
generally part of the organic matter, and they break down and release slowly from the organic matter and cycle through the organic matter. In this case, the nutrients are delivered directly in water form. Now, it has to be a little different from conventional because they have to use, under the current organic hydroponic system being certified, they have to use inputs that are on the approved list. So they can't just use chemicals that are often used in conventional agriculture. So what they do is they feed the plant something that's very easily degraded, like, for example, hydrolyzed soybean meal. And so it's almost digested. It's pre-digested. So they put it in the water, and it just breaks down from the bacteria in the water, and that delivers, for example, the nitrogen to the plant. And so they have ways of doing it. Basically, we're just under hydroponics. You're just delivering the nutrients in a water base, mm-hmm. and you're avoiding all that complexity of soil systems. Mm-hmm. Well, I can see that my job as a consumer educator, it just got a little bit harder because what I'm going to have to do is find out who the suppliers are for tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, etc., and contact each producer individually and ask them if their produce is produced in a hydroponic matter or if it is produced in soil and hope that they tell me the truth. Yes. And, and another thing you can do is ask the produce manager in the grocery store put the pressure on that person that they need to find out and they need to let people know. They may not want to do it, but I think that it's a good pressure point that they should be asking those questions. That's right. And I think that you know, you and I have had conversations about the importance of the consumer-farmer relationship. And in having these discussions and understanding what goes on at the NOSB and understanding how consumers can then unite with organic farmers to really protect this type of food production that benefits environment, public health, we will have a stronger system at the end of the day. Sure. And back to you, something you mentioned. You mentioned that the hydroponic organic vegetables should be labeled as such. Right. And one problem with that is that we have a sort of a shell game going on with the companies that produce hydroponically. They are starting to claim the big ones. There's one company in California in the area, maybe Mexico, part of it, that has 1,000 acres of hydroponic berries. Another company that has 60 acres of hydroponic vegetables and greenhouses. And so they are saying, we're not hydroponic, we're container growers. Mm. And that's a real deception because hydroponics is always in a container, and they're claiming that their containers are different from hydroponic. And part of it has to do with they use what's often what's called coconut core, it's a coconut husk, and they use it because it makes a good rooting medium, but it does not have any nutrients. It's virtually devoid of nutrients, and so it's, it's a good medium for holding up the plant because it doesn't degrade. It's very similar to inorganic stuff like rock wool, but they're claiming that since they have this material, they are not hydroponic. They're container growers, and even though they feed 100% of the nutrition to the plant in a liquid form, they will deny publicly that they are hydroponic. And so when push comes to shove, and, and there may or may not be another effort to try to label the hydroponic organic vegetables as hydroponic, they're going to balk and they're going to say, we're not hydroponic, we're container growers. Well, I think that we need a label then to say either hydroponic or container growing. 
somehow the consumer must know the difference in the production methods. And also, I would love to see more dollars dedicated to organic farming research so that ultimately we can find out, gosh, you know, the spinach that's grown in a hydroponic fashion has less critical nutrients, say, than the organic spinach that comes from the soil. So having that research to back up our recommendations for the soil-based system, I think, is also important in our mission. Uh-huh. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out, too, on hydroponics is that in Europe, they've resisted allowing hydroponics. There's only a little bit, a few countries that allow some container growing, and I mean by container, it's, it's not exactly hydroponic. It's some soil and some water. But in Europe, basically, they're, they're not allowing hydroponic production. Mm. And so we are kind of breaking the mold here on that. Right. And they're concerned that if we allow, in the U.S., allow hydroponic production to be certified organic, there's going to be more pressure on the government and the European Union to try to allow hydroponic in those countries. For example, in the Netherlands, there's a big corporation that grows hydroponically organic. Now, they can't sell it in the Netherlands because it's not allowed. They can sell it in the U.S. So oh they, they export their hydroponic organic vegetables to the U.S., but they can't sell them in the Netherlands. How is that Quite sustainable, <laughs> right? Taking a vegetable and carrying it so far away <laughs> from the source of production, I, I'm amazed that that is even allowed. Well, I think that as consumers now, we have to be not only informed about what goes on, but also empowered to make a difference. And I love the story that you tell about how we are indeed more powerful than we realize. We saw what happened, for example, with the growth hormone that was injected into cows. Consumers rose up and they said, we don't want this, and it very quietly went away. I'm hopeful that maybe consumers can have an impact if we act to influence and strengthen the USDA organic label. I think that's absolutely right. And we seem to be not getting much progress with legislative and rulemaking options in organics in many, many arenas. So we seem to be losing our power in, in the realm of, of lawmaking. But in the realm of consumer choice, we have tremendous power, and we need to go in that route. Mm-hmm. And one thing that is beginning to emerge is an add-on label. So farmers who are certified organic, they could have an add-on label that would be right. And we seem to be not getting much progress with legislative and rulemaking options in organics in many, many arenas. So we seem to be losing our power in, in the realm of, of lawmaking. But in the realm of consumer choice, we have tremendous power, and we need to go in that route. Mm-hmm. And one thing that is beginning to emerge is an add-on label. So farmers who are certified organic, they could have an add-on label that would, would also indicate, for example, that they're not hydroponic, that's grown in the soil. And it would indicate, for example, that their cows are getting a lot of their diet from grass. It could, like, for example, double the national standard is 30% for 120 days of the dry matter of the feed for the cows. It could be doubled. It could be 60%. So a higher standard. And also for chickens, that chickens have real access to the outdoors, and there could be simple standards for that. So this add-on label could be in addition to the regular organic seal, and, and that way the consumers and producers could work together to circumvent this problem we have with the regulators not enforcing the rules. Right. 
I wish we had more time to really delve into some of those complications with an add-on label. Additional consumer education, would there be an additional cost to farmers? Would farmers then decide to throw up their hands and say, you know what, forget it, I'm just going to sell my produce or my livestock products locally and avoid any kind of government oversight? You know, there's already feelings about having any kind of involvement with a government that we don't trust. So there are so many barriers and hurdles in finding truly good food. Yes, and you're right. I think some producers are opting out, and as long as they can sell locally, their customers know how they grow it. They can let them know. But if you're selling into a a national or international market, then you have a different limitation. Well, and even locally, I have to tell you, Dr. Thickey, I try to give most of my food dollars to the organic certified farmers simply because I've been lied to by quote-unquote local farmers who will tell me what I want to know. And it also makes the consumer uncomfortable, I think, if they have to be the interrogator of a farmer. It's much easier to go to a farmer's market find the certified organic producer, and you can have a conversation about their pets or their kids, but you don't have to start peppering them with questions about their production system, and we may not even know all the questions to ask. Good point. Very good point. It's better if it's certified organic, no question. Yeah. Another thing that I wanted to ask you about has to do with the certifiers who will allow less-than-ideal functions to pass. Has there been any effort to expose certifiers? I know that when I go to the supermarket, for example, and I look at an organic product, it says on the label who the certifier is. Is there a way for the consumer to know which certifiers are the most trustworthy? That's a really good question. And, for example, the CAFO dairies, many of them are certified by one certifier. And, unfortunately, there's a little conflict of interest because to get certified, you have to pay the certifier And the bigger you are, the more you pay the certifier. So these huge operations, they pay many thousands of dollars to get certified. And so there's a disincentive for the certifier to really rattle the chain too much. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with hydroponics. There's one certifier that certifies almost all of the hydroponics in this country. And when we had this big debate this last year in the NOSB on certification of hydroponics, that certifier went to bat for the big hydroponics companies that were their clientele. And so there's a real conflict of interest there. And beyond that, even a trade association for organic went to bat for the big hydroponic people, and they also get large dues from these companies. And so there's a little bit of a conflict of interest in that. And mm-hmm. I think that it's, it's incumbent upon USDA to start being more rigorous and Maybe you've heard about the, you probably, I'm sure you did, the Washington Post article mm-hmm. that looked at a big cafo dairy in Colorado, mm-hmm. many thousands of cows, and they looked at it for over eight days. They did, uh, use, I think they used drones and so on, and they found those cows weren't grazing, mm-hmm. even though they're supposed to be grazing. And then they investigated further, they found out the certifier only inspected them after the grazing season. So that's very lax certification and inspection. Mm-hmm. And then... That was reported to USDA, and the USDA did an official investigation. And instead of coming in unannounced to see what's going on and look at the records, USDA called them and made an appointment so that they could meet on a certain day, which, of course, gives a heads up to the, the big CAFO 
that they need to get their records in line and make sure everything looks right. Well, Dr. Thickey, unfortunately, it is. Unfortunately, our time is up. I'm going to have to have you come back and talk more about some of the constraints and some of the ways consumers can work with organic farmers to strengthen the seal that we very much need. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sooth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And mostly, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Francis Thickey, organic dairy farmer and soil scientist based in Fairfield, Iowa. Thank you so much for your time, for your volunteer efforts on the NOSB, and let's have another conversation, again, emphasizing what consumers can do, working with farmers to keep that label strong. Thank you, Melinda.